Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today we have with us Vivek. Did I say that right? From yep. Toronto. <laughs> and what's your last name? Sakar. Sakar. And uh, so you and I started working together recently around some WASM stuff. And Bruce and I have, we, we, it keeps coming up. Like WASM is this exciting thing with lots of stuff happening around it. We're like, we got to have somebody on to talk about WASM. So here we have Vivek, yay, to talk about, talk to us and help us learn about WASM. And before we get started, I want to plug the Winter Tech Forum, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. You can still come. Yes, in Crested Butte, Colorado. In Crested Butte, Colorado, and we have we're getting more snow as we speak. So, I mean, you don't have to be a snow person, but yeah. if you are, if you are, it's nice. I'm really excited. Um, I'll be here, of course. Yes. <laughs> yep. uh, but there's, I think we have a decent number of people coming, yeah, and so enough to make conversations, which is yeah. the whole point. So, I'm sure we will spend some time exploring WASM. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that'll be the hackathon day project yeah. or suggestion. Unless I get sucked in a Nix. So uh, yeah. I've I've been uh you know, I've been on this Nix thing. Nix kick. Uh, Nix kick. Uh-huh. Um and Nicks there's for kids. my my list of my to do list with Nix, it initially started shrinking and now I'm at the point with Nix where my to do list is growing. Mm. And so mm. um could maybe do some Nix stuff. Mm-hmm. Or um I, you know, the easy racer thing I've been working on. Yes. So somebody, I, well, Jack, just, mm-hmm. we know Jack. He, I wonder if he's going to be here this year. Didn't Tech seem Fund. like it. Yeah. Shoot. Uh, he contributed the go version and is working on a, a Swift, a Swift version. version. And then someone else just contributed a Scala one with something that lo- uses loom underneath the covers with Scala. And it's really nice. Like Ooh. you, you got to see this. Uh, it's called Ox is the name of the framework for structured concurrency in Scala with Loom. Huh. Anyways, I, I, we definitely could spend some time on Easy Racer, oh, right? Okay. Intertech Farm. Yeah. Where I was going with all that. There's so. all kinds of possibilities. All kinds anyway, of possibilities. we were going to talk about Wasm. Wasm. Okay, Vivek, tell us about yourself. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, I'm a product manager uh, working with the Chrome team on uh, our web platform side of things. Um, so we have a, one group that works on the user facing side for the Chrome browser and another group that works with the various standard bodies and partners across the web ecosystem. Uh, and I've been working for the last couple of years on on WASM or WebAssembly. Um, and it's this incredibly exciting new technology that started years and years and years ago, um, but uh, is now really kind of um, becoming super uh, relevant and exciting for a lot of different reasons. And uh, yeah, we're, we're working with uh, folks, um, working with JetBrains um, on a Kotlin compiler to uh, WebAssembly, as well as a whole bunch of other potential uh, technologies and use cases. Um, so yeah, it's a super exciting time to be working on WebAssembly. It's really great to share it with you guys. And James, you just tried the Kotlin for WASM. Yeah, we just got to dive into it last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You got something working. <laughs> the The hardest challenge was Nix. <laughs> back uh, to, to full circle. Back to Nix. We had some challenges getting getting some Nix stuff working in Nix and build and went to, to Ubuntu. Affect um, anyone else? Wasn't totally unrelated to Wasm and Colin uh-huh. Wasm and yeah. So we got some some basic stuff working last mm-hmm. week, and it's cool. Like I can. I, for years, I've been hearing about all the excitement around Wasm, and the thing that's always kind of kept me from it is that it until the wasm gc stuff which we'll get into i didn't i'm i've never actually done c or c plus plus and so that was just kind of not not a way for me into wasm i've done a tiny bit of rust and that i could have done the rust wasm thing and i think that that's interesting there's a lot of uh, cool stuff happening there but for me i i like the modern um modern's not quite the right word the higher level languages and so now that we're getting some of these higher level languages being able to target wasm you could almost say the happier path the happier path right yeah yeah Um, sure high level languages allow you to do more with less work yeah so i think maybe where we start this is to talk about what has been done for ages like i over a decade maybe two with the web is that if you had a language that you wanted to use and you wanted that language to target the web, which was in your language is not JavaScript, you had to transpile your language into JavaScript. And 
there are just probably endless issues with this with this approach. Oh yeah, I used CoffeeScript, and and it was actually, I mean, compared to JavaScript, it was nice, but you know, better than course, JavaScript. But I guess JavaScript has gotten a lot of better things in it since well then. now a lot of those people well that want a better javascript are doing typescript yeah i think typescript yeah. kind of taken over um but i think for a long time a lot of people have wanted something that was able to run in the browser that is not javascript i certainly have and and so thus wasm right is vivek are we getting that right yeah yeah no there's there's been a whole bunch of different inroads in the direction of wasm i like to think conceptually and one of them is exactly that it's like you know it, it's hard to say you have um a, a fully explored what it means to be a platform if there's only one language that runs on it and uh and so we've you know kind of intuited that you know we we want to kind of open up the web to lots of different languages and give them a fair shot at you know full kind of kind of device performance and that wasn't really possible in that world that you're describing where everything has to be routed through javascript and inherit all of its um all of its you know quirks and and some of those quirks are really amazing if you're writing javascript code or typescript code it's very dynamic or easy to write but if you're writing C++ code, you know you definitely don't want to be, you know, running that through uh, through JavaScript because there's just so many different properties that uh, that are going to get in the way. So, yeah, I think uh, the, as an the, example, one of these that I, I think I've heard about is the way that numbers are represented in JavaScript. That in if you are transpiling to JavaScript, you assume this weird thing about javascript which is like every number is internally a float or something like that is that well I'm it's not yeah it's internally expert, unspecified right like so an implementation oh that's right even it, better yeah. it needs to do exactly it's just, um, it's just anything right yeah but that's i mean that's um, the nature of these sort of like dynamic environments right like it's it's an idealized programming environment that's really great to use but it requires some machinery to actually make that run on an on a, on a physical machine and uh, that machinery is expensive and not not always well specified and and has runtime costs. So yeah, numbers are a great example. There's a thing called boxing your types. So basically, you put everything into a container so that you don't have to worry about how big it is inside. Uh, there's a bunch of other things that you know interpreters do. And you know if you if you need it, it's great. And if you don't need it, you know then uh, it, it's kind of overhead. It, and one of a related limitation I think with this is that in JavaScript you can only go up to like an int thirty two in terms of integer representations, right? And and so if you need something larger than int thirty two, then you just are like, well, like it gets hard. I think we just use two. <laughs> That's right. Combine two ends together, yeah, and yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, anyways, it's. This is, and I'm maybe not 100% getting this limitation correctly, but the I think meta point is that that when you transpile to JavaScript, when that is your the what defines your limitations, there you're always going to be bumping against something that is not quite the way that you want it to be, and so many years ago, this idea to have an assembly language underneath JavaScript came about and that was WebAssembly. is that oh, wait a minute let me oh, okay. try this because i my understanding was that okay javascript runs on a virtual machine and so it has byte codes is that right does it have byte codes um it has yes there are certain intermediate representations between the javascript you would write by hand and the code that's ultimately executed um, but there are various byte codes actually going all the way down to machine instructions in a just-in-time compiler. So yeah, there's it's a whole spectrum inside the inside the interpreter magic. So my understanding of WASM is that it's some uh, Turing complete subset of those byte codes that you're targeting when you're compiling from another language. Is that right? Um, it's not quite a subset. It's actually kind of a new language on its own. Um, and so, but it's meant to be very close to the low level machine languages of a lot of different machines. So the idea with WebAssembly, and this goes, you know, even before there was WebAssembly, we at Google had a technology called native client where you could compile a C++ app, you know, similar to you, similar to what you would build with for a desktop app, like, you know, Google maps back in the day, or sorry, Google earth back in the day. And then you could ship that code as an exe that would then run, you know, in a, inside a sandbox in the browser natively on on your device, but still sort of protected in the web runtime environment. 
Um, and so what we wanted to do was take that technology and not make it sort of specific to one platform or one you know, provider. We wanted to open it up. We also didn't want to necessarily um, you know, fix the technology on any one machine architecture. So we didn't want it to just be for Intel processors or ARM processors. We wanted it to kind of be general. So what you know, you can think of WebAssembly as the machine language for a logical processor, a processor that doesn't physically exist anywhere, but uh, has a well-defined set of behaviors the way a physical processor would. And WebAssembly is easily translatable into the physical instructions for a lot of processors that exist today, including ARM devices on mobile as well as you know Intel devices on uh, on desktop. So it sounds a lot like what they did with the Java Virtual Machine. But you're saying that uh, they actually created a bunch of, did they create a whole new set of opcodes or did they, were there some that were already okay and so they could use those and add? And, and also how did they shoehorn this into this JavaScript world? Well, yeah, that second question is a very big, open, ongoing design question in the community. Um, but in terms of designing the machine, I think they were able to sort of learn from the kind of maturation of machine instructions over the many years. Like um, x86 has been around for a very long time. ARM has been around for a very long time. All these machine language instructions or instruction sets have kind of coalesced around a common set of you know register machines and stack machines and common concepts, um, virtual memory, that sort of thing that have kind of built up over the many years. So they had a really great starting point just in the in the computer science ecosystem and the software development ecosystem. Um, and so it's it 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 is it, it's not quite sort of like inventing a whole new machine that's never existed before. It's actually just polishing some of the rough edges of individual architectures and creating something new. Um, but so real quick, when WebAssembly was created, it, part of that creation was to at least standardize the the bytecode opcodes that were going to be supported by this uh, probably at the point theoretical WASM. Um, machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, the WASM standard essentially is a standard for this machine and what it will do when it encounters each one of these bytecodes and how it kind of manipulates memory um, and all the kind of performance characteristics around it. And, uh, and it, and, you know, for the two platforms that are most popular right now, x86 and ARM, uh, as well as we hope future platforms, it should be very easy to realize that those performance requirements and that specification without the kind of heavyweight interpreter that you have today with JavaScript. Um, and so in, you know, at least in on platforms like Android and Chrome and V8, we actually can lower those instructions directly to machine code instructions. Uh, it's a little bit trickier on iOS because they don't allow kind of uh, code pages um, to be jitted, but that's the idea of kind of like, it, it basically is as close as possible to a machine instruction without being tied to a particular machine vendor. Huh. Hmm. What's amazing is that this came, I, I guess in a lot of ways, the web is this creating this common denominator across platforms. And so it seems in some ways weird that that this common assembly language, common bytecode would come kind of through the browsers and through the web, but then it also kind of makes sense because of the web has always kind of <laughs> done that sort of thing. So yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and so, what we're seeing actually, what we're seeing actually, you know, WebAssembly being pulled in the other direction. So we created this, like you said, for the web to run on all different platforms. But now WebAssembly is starting to show up on cloud computing platforms and edge computing platforms um, because of exactly that. It's this common sort of isolated runtime. It's kind of doing for containers, uh, you know, it's doing at the instruction set what containers did for the kind of operating system environment. And you can create a packaged binary that truly does. That is portable. And, and that's super yeah. exciting. Yeah, so back to Bruce's question, which was about how do you then... get this? I mean, you've got this huge JavaScript world and you're, I, I mean, so does JavaScript itself get rewritten to use WebAssembly or? Uh, yeah, what's this? What, what's <laughs> going, what, how does this work? So so in the what we call the WebAssembly MVP, the um, minimal viable product that sort of we put out as, a, as an initial standard, um, basically, uh, it's it, JavaScript, you know, you instantiate a, a WebAssembly runtime from your JavaScript environment, you load a WebAssembly binary into it, and then you can start running it. Uh, and there's some very simple kind of interop where you can kind of basically just exchange numbers, right? And so you can construct higher level um, data structures from these kind of composites of, of numbers. Um, 
that's just sort of a very basic kind of, we needed something. And so we put this in place, uh, but it's by no means the end state. Um, when we get into what we're now looking at, what we call WASM GC, which is um, an integrated heap between JavaScript and WebAssembly. What that basically means is if you're writing code in Kotlin or in a JVM language, then when you allocate memory in the, that language, you're actually allocating memory from a common pool uh, with the JavaScript uh, code that's running next to you. And so that, you know, if you kind of squint, that helps you interoperate because now you can pass objects between Kotlin code and JavaScript code and back again. And the garbage collector just kind of knows where all the objects are and can collect cycles and things like that. Um, so that's a big sort of thing that we're launching uh, this year that will enable languages like Kotlin as well as Dart um, to, uh, to run uh, in this WebAssembly environment in a way that doesn't require shipping a whole lot of their own infrastructure. Um, that so doesn't are solve you... the problem of how you interoperate with JavaScript, but it's the beginning of a solution because JavaScript is this incredibly dynamic language. You need to have at least some dynamism to your object allocation just to even start that conversation. Are you specifying how a data structure should be laid out? I mean, when you talk about passing objects between one language and another, do you, you know, how do the languages know what the objects look like? So right now, that's very much left to the implementation. Um, so if you are writing, you know, JavaScript code that connects to your Kotlin code, you kind of have to understand what exactly it is you're passing back and forth. Our hope is that, you know, libraries will be written to help facilitate that. But at the standards level, we're still a couple of layers below uh, solving that problem. Um, we're just kind of making it possible to pass objects without messing up memory allocation. Um, and then we'll kind of explore further things above that. Um, one example of a higher order structure that's just kind of one click higher than, uh, than garbage collection is the string ref proposal, which is a very new proposal, but it's an attempt to say, well, look, everybody's going to need strings. These strings are often dynamically allocated. They're often passed back and forth across this boundary. So maybe there's a kind of common, you know, lowest common denominator for strings that we can agree on. Um, and then make that work in a way that's sensible across JavaScript. Still a very challenging space. Um, a lot of discussions happening there, but it's exactly what you're describing in terms so of like an example, pressing. like some languages will use UTF-8, some will use UTF-16, some will use some other representation exactly. and being able to, to have a string reference across both sides, like not get screwed up on this. <laughs> is, yeah, is a place and that... the big one is JavaScript uses UTF-16 and very few other languages do. And so we have this interesting problem where the web, strings on the web are a special case. Even internally inside Chrome, we have different representations for strings as many large software products do. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 a definitely an area for further research. Yeah. So maybe I missed this, but it sounds like there's a standards committee and it sounds like you're on it. Is this... Uh, so we have up. engineers who uh, represent um, our little neck of the woods, uh, Chrome and V8, uh, on the standards committee. Um, we also have representatives from uh, the other major browser vendors. So it's a big kind of open uh, community process. Um, there's also a very uh, significant participation from the academic community because, like I said, you know, we're designing this logical machine, and you know, this is a very kind of uh, complex and and uh, a abstract undertaking. You know, what is that type system? How does it interoperate with other type systems? So, we have you know so many people to thank for for getting us even this far, and we're going to need everybody to go further. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, that's what I have seen when I've come across WASM stuff. It's like, oh my gosh, these people are involved and these people are involved and these people are involved. It's like, it's like, it's amazing how many people are working together to push this stuff forward. So that For has sure. been cool. So coming back real quick to Bruce's question where he's, I think he started to ask a little bit about like at the runtime side of things, what's the relationship between JavaScript, the interpreter, V8, like all, all and WASM, like how does all that stuff kind of end up fitting together? Yeah. So, I mean, the JavaScript ecosystem and um, the kind of um, major interpreters that are, that are used uh, today, V8 being one of them, uh, they are incredibly mature and incredibly sophisticated. Um, and so running JavaScript code, it's not just like a simple sort of, you know, uh, uh, interpreter loop. It's it's actually a kind of a just-in-time compiler. It's profiling your code as it's running. It's figuring out kind of which code is the hot code and lowering that further, um, caching different versions of different functions based on the types that are passed into them. It's an incredibly complex system. Um, and so plugging into that, you know, from the static world is, is very challenging. Um, one of the things, one of the great uh, opportunities for WebAssembly is you can, when, when WebAssembly code arrives, you know, from the server, 
um, it's already kind of lowered and optimized and, and a little bit, you know, it's kind of like ready to run at, at high speed. So we're super excited about being able to build V8 and being able to build browser engines um, that hit sort of something near their peak performance from the very first, you know, uh, function call or the very first kind of line of code. Um, so that's a real opportunity, I think, for web apps to get really great startup time um, and to load um, complex, you know, uh, compute applications that feel native from the very first uh, moment. That's something that's a little bit trickier to do in the JavaScript world uh, today mm -hmm. because of the different tiers of optimization and compilers that you usually have to go. Yeah, through. and like the warm up phase, like it, exactly yeah. as you call something more, then it's going to get inlined or whatever. Exactly. Uh, at runtime, but why not just have that peak performance out of the gate? Yeah, nice. yeah, and the ahead of time compilation model, I think, is something that could really benefit the web. There's still challenges with code size. Um, ahead of time compilation tends to produce larger binaries than the JavaScript equivalent, so mm -hmm. network traffic becomes uh, the bottleneck, um, and networks are not getting as fast as they're, they're not on the same trajectory as sort of CPUs uh, in terms of performance improvement. So we have to do some work there to try to figure out how to reduce the sizes of these payloads. But um, yeah, the, the hope is that developers can build their applications and their tool chains will do the work to make those applications ready to run fast right from the get-go. And uh, that's something that uh, I think could bring real value to end users without them even really noticing that there's a change. Yeah. So how does it handle, I mean, especially on the web where you've got you know, all kinds of different versions of everything. How does it handle versioning? So like in particular, would it be able to cache something if it knew it was the version that it wanted? Uh, versioning of, of what? Of a payload? Like the actual of WASM the components. Files. Yeah. Of the, of the well, WASM we should talk about the component side of it. But, but. Yeah. So the WASM just gets delivered as this like binary file to the browser, right? And then today, the way to then run that WASM is through JavaScript. You say like, like, all right, here's your here's your WASM file with all the bytecode in it. Run this thing. There may be, I guess, at some point in the future, like ability to just do a script tag pointed to a WASM file or something. I'll just run it without having a JavaScript wrapper or something. But today, anyways, JavaScript API, give it the WASM file. It runs it. I think where Bruce was going with this is, well, there must be some kind of module system, right? Exactly. So, like, in, if you need and the modules, how do you split up a application into yes. into multiple WASM files? Mm -hmm. This is a great question, and uh, you're asking all the right questions. We we don't have uh, full answers to them yet. Uh, you're right that the current state um, is that we have a very well standardized instruction set. We can build these binary files and instantiate them and execute them. How those are stitched together is is currently an out of band question, um, and so a lot of it goes back to that question of interop. There was a series of proposals um, called interface types where um, the, the ecosystem, you know, the, the standards bodies and the, and the related interested groups were trying to figure out a way to get different modules written in different languages even uh, to be able to call into each other and share types. Um, and this, this turns out to be another one of those big sort of open research problems um, because even among static languages, there's slightly different, you know, semantics around what an object is and what it can do and how it's allocated, how big it is, um, how it moves around. And so there's all these kind of like performance cliffs where you have to convert a string from, like you said, one encoding to another. Um, so yeah, we don't have, we, we don't have a good handle on what that looks like. Um, what we're excited about is uh, two main areas, at least in the, in the interim. One is, like you said, shipping whole applications. In some cases, that makes sense because from the developer's point of view, you know, they have a large code base. It's all in a repo. They want to compile it, build it. And they actually kind of want that sort of repeatable experience where once they have that binary, it's kind of frozen in time and they know and conversion it and, and they know what the user is getting and what the user is experiencing. So, for example, if you get a feedback report, you can, you know, get a version number and go back and recreate that binary, trace it, debug it, that sort of thing. So the basically a mono repo. What's that? A mono repo, or at least that's what they call it in the Python community. Yeah, it might be a mono repo, but it, at least it's a potentially a reproducible build. So even if it's coming from multiple repos, you'll be able to actually go back to the same artifact and uh, mm -hmm. and diagnose it and debug it. Um, the other piece that we're super excited about is the the entire library strategy. So there's a lot of libraries, um, you know, related to text layout, related to internationalization, related to um, 2D drawing. Um, and these libraries are very mature and very stable. Um, they tend not to change. Uh, and even if they do change, they're very minor changes and the API stays the same. 
And so this is an opportunity where you could have, you know, like HarfBuzz or FreeType or some of these kind of like very stable text and drawing APIs uh, and, and libraries packaged up in a way that sits on a CDN and can be accessed by lots of different sites uh, without necessarily having to fetch it every single time. Um, and so there, there's some opportunity even in the static world where we don't have the component model, the dynamic component model figured out, um, where we can actually recognize that there's certain parts that are kind of stable enough and, and, and pull those out of applications. And there is some proposal for, for a WASM component model or something, some way to, to be able to publish a WASM, publish a library as WASM and then have someone else consume that library and use it in their WASM application or something along those lines, right? Is that? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of different proposals. Um, there, there's also just, you know, simple integration with, um, the JavaScript ecosystem. So you, you, implement WASM as, as your own kind of implementation detail, um, and you expose your library as a JavaScript library and people can, you know, NPM install and all that stuff. Um, yeah. And so that's that's a, just a handy way of using infrastructure that already exists. The overhead for that is not huge. It depends on how frequently you're calling into the library, but the JavaScript wrapper code can be pretty compact um, and you benefit from, you know, all of the existing sort of ecosystem uh, uh, the ecosystem of libraries and tools that that can operate on that. So that's that's probably kind of the the, the most active right now, um, but there may be others in the future. Yeah, you talked about um, let's see, uh, you know, containers, and it seems like well, all JavaScript programs run in a sandbox, right? Yep. Okay, so that's maybe some a little bit containery but then there's this wazzy thing that sounds like the equivalent i mean it sounds like you're talking to um, the operating system facilities so it's a little bit like docker right yeah i mean uh the whole idea the whole you know universe of isolation application isolation is is super interesting um and yeah we went from vms to containers now to wasm runtimes um, you know, Node also did this with JavaScript, right? Like you just, you're, you're running inside of a, you know, quote unquote web um, sandbox. Um, and uh, and I think I think it's a real opportunity at, uh, for WASM for this kind of like shared machine instruction because you can isolate at the machine instruction layer. Um, so we had a project a couple of years ago called GVisor where we would basically uh, isolate guest processes and then intercept all the system calls uh, and we could stub out and kind of secure the process that way. And that created a sort of POSIX compliant sandbox um, around, around a process. And it was hugely popular uh, in the ecosystem. I think we've kind of moved on to different, you know, different hypervisor technologies now. But um, if, if you could do that, instead of waiting for a syscall, if you can actually do that, you know, simulating each in machine instruction and ensuring that it is compliant to, with some you know, security policy, um, that's something that the security guys really love. Um, and so I could imagine WASM playing uh, a really interesting role in the kind of container ecosystem. Um, we've also seen use cases um, at, with edge computing because of the fast startup time. So it's really slow to start up a VM. It's faster to start up a container, but it's really fast to just start interpreting WASM. Um, and so there's a potential there for folks to be able to deploy code in response to requests rather than pre-deploying and consuming resources um, waiting for users. Yeah, so a couple things on on that. First, the um, I just saw today that Containerd just announced their WASM support. So it's it is kind of interesting how the whole container world we we basically created a way to I think like you said silo a POSIX, like something that was a POSIX system. And with Docker containers, you get these Docker containers that have a like full Linux system in them. And then you've got this uh, hypervisor outside of it that is controlling what it can actually do. And yeah, I remember like, seems like every month there's some new security vulnerability where you can escape out of this and actually get to the underlying system and lots of challenges with it. But it always just seemed like a lot of kind of layers to get to a, a sandbox that never really worked super well. And so pretty quickly, uh, at least over the last couple months, it seems like a number of these container technologies have enabled support for WASM. And I think that the benefits of, of it are just obvious, like you said, like you get all these sandboxing, easy sandboxing benefits with the portability of WASM all combined together rather than I just start like I've been 
um, with the Easy Racer project, I had to do Docker multi-platform stuff. And oh my God, <laughs> like it is not, not fun where I would much rather just ship something actually multi-platform say wasm and let me explain something here james i've watched him bang his head against the wall for hours (laughs) like he will not give up so when he says oh my god that was hard that means something well and the worst part of it was that github actions don't support arm like physical arm processors anymore Hmm. or yet and so to create your arm container you have to use uh what's the what's the simulator on linux to simulate other other architectures no anyways you have to use that and it's really freaking slow and so the only way that i could actually test this was to to make a little change wait an hour (laughs) because it was so slow whereas the the uh the x86 one would take like two minutes you know and so anyways that was a long way to say that i would so much prefer to just send wasm wasm as my multi-platform thing this makes so much sense for containerization mm-hmm. for the like the serverless the cloud the edge functions then trying to to finagle a non-multi-platform non-sandbox technology into having both of those things right yeah, yeah it's like that the right. old saying of like easy fast and uh portable pick two right and so inevitably easy is the one that goes out the window because all of this stuff is kind of cobbled together and unmaintained and uh yeah there's emulators and simulators involved so i think wasm could maybe break through free from that trade-off i don't know yeah there was a interview that bill venners did with i think bill joy uh many years ago about java and and that you, you when you read this you come away with Oh, they were in a big hurry. And so, because, I mean, when you look at the number of mistakes, like all, pretty much all of threads had to be backed off oh, years and years later after everybody was scratching their heads and were, why, why is my thread of program isn't work? And, uh, and then the right once run everywhere thing just, it was a good, you know, it was a good try. It was a start. We, we, we all now believe in the idea, yeah. but it's not. I don't think it's going to be the yeah the way to do it. Whereas this, so here, that's a good question. What so what if I wanted to deploy something that was just the equivalent of a native app on, you know, that I wasn't running inside the browser? Is there a what equivalent of Node kind of? There's a couple different implementations out there for Wasm that are detached from the browser, right? Yeah, so if you're if you're thinking about running on the server, there's Wasm only runtimes um, that will run your code on the server. Um, there's also um, you know there's an interesting direction here which hasn't been that fully explored just yet because before Wasm GC it wasn't easy to write you know not a lot of people were writing you know user facing apps in C anymore, um, but I think it's a really exciting area going forward and that's the entire space of electron apps um, so apps that are packaging up web apis basically and bringing them with them to the desktop platform uh, for exactly the the reason you mentioned right like the right wants run anywhere kind of ethos um, vs code is a great example of this you know you can run vs code in your browser and on github code space and then you can also run it on your desktop and the way that they're doing that is by taking web apis to the desktop rather than trying to do the do it the other way around So the prospect of something like Wasm, which brings kind of native performance to the mix, uh, along with this sort of multi-platform, multi-language kind of capability, you could start seeing Wasm plus web APIs being packaged up as a native app through a technology like Electron, um, and then running at a rate that's indistinguishable on a desktop uh, compared to native desktop applications uh, on that platform. Um, and so that's 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 an area that we're digging into uh, quite a lot, um, especially as it relates to bringing you know graphics APIs from the web um, to further the sort of write once run anywhere ethos. If you design your UI to run against Web Canvas, then you actually can run it on multiple platforms. If you design yeah. your UI to use Web GPU, you can actually do 3D graphics on multiple platforms. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's something that that uh, could be a direction that we take 
uh, in the future. So, and then on the packaging side, which I think you're also asking about, mm -hmm. was today if you want to run a Wasm program on your machine without not in the browser, you can get one of these Wasm only runtimes. Is that what they're called? Wasm only runtime. Uh, I don't know if that's like the official term for it, but okay. uh, yeah, there's like Wasm time, Wasmer, these sorts of runtimes. Okay, and what? Yeah, so Wasm time is one of these, mm -hmm. and so you can install the the binary for Wasm time, and then that's your Wasm interpreter. So you give it your Wasm file, and then you're you're running your Wasm on your on your machine. But I would guess that if it doesn't already exist, it will exist to be able to take one of those Wasm. Uh, only runtimes and a WASM file and create the native executables for different platforms um, to like do that packaging step. Maybe it already exists. I yeah. haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, it's possible. I'm not, I'm not sure if it produces like like an EXE on a Windows machine or something like that. I, right. It, so it I think it probably is exist it get there at some point, but and and be able to target like kind of the LLVM for for WASM. I'm sure will exist if it doesn't already. So. It almost sounds like we could eventually be to a point where we go, remember the JVM? And we go, no. <laughs> There's a, a big push from a lot of people that this is the way out of the JVM. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's some real, real validity to that because... It's like, yeah, if, the, if your JVM was the thing that was giving you portability for Java bytecode, if we have a different bytecode and a different uh, VM, essentially, a different interpreter, then, yeah, that's, that well, definitely gives you an alternative. I'll do you guys one better. So last year at Google I.O., we announced that our Google Workspace team uh, is working on compiling Java code to WebAssembly for their web runtime. In particular, uh, they have been working since last year to get the Google Worksheets calc engine, um, the one that kind of goes through your entire spreadsheet and computes all of the different formulas. Um, that will be a module that is compiled to WebAssembly from the original Java code. Now, it's still very it's kind of like a Google-specific Google toolchain, but it is a, a big step in terms of deploying this at scale to users. Speed and portability. So today, that team, they convert Java to JavaScript to run in the browser, to run mm. that calculation engine in the browser. And you could imagine that that's not going to get you to the best performance that mm -hmm. you would maybe like, especially for large spreadsheets. Heavy calculation. Yeah. yeah. We, um, we, when we were playing with, with Wasm last week, we just we did a, a super quick Fibonacci test, and Kotlin has Kotlin JS and Kotlin Wasm, so it was pretty easy to say, okay, take this super simple Fibonacci thing and run it via JavaScript, Kotlin JS, JavaScript, and and Kotlin Wasm, and like we, there was no code difference between these two, mm -hmm. and the startup time or the execution time of this thing that we were playing with was like seven seconds in JavaScript and two and a half in Wasm. And I was like, okay, like I, and I'm sure that like none of this has been like really like squeezed all the performance out of it yet. Like I know the Kotlin Wasm, it's super early. They have not definitely not done a lot of performance optimizations yet. I think the Wasm runtimes, like they've not squeezed all the potential performance out of those yet. Like, like it just seems like, okay, we're at the beginning of this and we're already um, three times, two, faster. three times faster. Yeah. And that's, there's that's a lot more headroom. Yeah, for sure. We've seen at least two X uh, speed improvements on a number of different tests, including tests that call into web APIs frequently. Um, numerics benefit the most, uh, probably, um, because exactly what you said, you know, we're, we don't have to worry about boxing a number and dealing with what it could be dynamically. Um, and so, yeah, you're able to lower those instructions down into the machine code, um, and use in 64s and things like that native to the machine. Um, so well, yeah. It's, and like it's, you said before, like the JavaScript stuff has been very tightly rung for like eking every last bit of performance we can possibly get out of it. Like, like I'm sure performance games gains at this point in the JavaScript space are like, you really have to work hard to get like a 2% performance improvement, you know, whereas with Wasm, I think it, we're just at the beginning of, of like what we're going to see on the performance side. So I think it's pretty exciting for, for performance for sure. Um, I want to hop back to Wazzy. 
So we were talking about about non kind of browser use cases for Wasm and the the cloud serverless all that kind of stuff definitely a lot of potential there but often if you want to run something you need to interface with the system and that's where Wasi comes in is giving you those the ability to call into certain system APIs right and I we touched on this a little bit just wanted to go a little bit further cuz I one of the things that I see like typical server side people getting excited about with Wasm is Wazzy. So did I did I characterize Wazzy and what it's doing correctly? Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, Wazzy is like uh, it's doing for POSIX what Wasm did for x86. Um, so it's kind of like one little extra layer of abstraction and then making it available to the WebAssembly uh, runtime code. Yeah, and and so this is still an area of pretty ongoing. Uh, development like like it sounds like wazzy is not fully there yet or what's what's kind of the general state of um, WASI? it's yeah it's it's ongoing in the sense that um it, it's not fully baked and the ecosystem continues to sort of um uh add to it but i would say that as a system interface you know it does have posix to inspire that kind of conversation and so there's a sort of rough sense of where it's going to end up but there's you know discussion about particulars here and there about you know suitability for specific use cases or security implications things like that that makes sense so i have two weird questions one is does oracle have anybody on the wasm committee uh i don't know i can check uh I mean, I just... So Grawl is, they are adding Wasm support through Grawl. So you know how Grawl is, Grawl native image is their way to take Java bytecode and ahead of time compile it into native binaries. And so that's the place where they have actually been doing some Wasm work, huh? which is, you know, for, I guess, some speculation here that Oracle probably has to support Wasm in some way. Otherwise they miss out on the bandwagon. But I don't know what, they would be thinking about in terms of how this threatens the the JVM and what they're what they have there. It sure seems to. Yeah. Um, so the other weird question is, um, I mean, you know, JavaScript is so dominant, and so now you have this WebAssembly thing, and it makes me wonder if you could imagine somebody developing a processor that directly executed Wasm. Uh, assembly. Do you remember when the people? I think his son was working on the yes. the like Java processors that would execute right. Java bytecode. I think they even <laughs> they had did. them. So yeah, God, yeah. full circle. We're yeah. back to. But one. this is yeah. Well, okay, interesting. It's it's close. Do you know I mean, of anybody working on a Wasm? <laughs> a Wasm <laughs> machine. Wasm yeah, I, it, this probably touches. I have to like confer with some of my more academic and technical colleagues, but I think there may be some. I think you would design an instruction set slightly differently if it were for a physical machine than for the logical machine that we had in mind. We always imagined that there would be this like interim step of interpretation that would be very fast, but there would still be one between WASM and the physical machine. So I wonder if WASM has maybe baked in some assumptions there around that interpretation. Um, mm. I'm not sure how, I mean, but if they were trying to build a, a Java bytecode uh, processor, then you know, it, I, I could only imagine it'd be easier to build a WASM machine than that. Um, but I'm not sure that it's it's uh, on the radar right now. Uh, the one place maybe related to this is that I hope to see Wasm gain some traction is on the like IoT space. So every time I've done IoT, it's like, ah, oh, geez, really? Like this terrible variant of C? Really, I got to use that to like like work on this little processor? Like, man, if if Wasm, I've can... only used MicroPython. So MicroPython is is cool, yeah. but but wouldn't it be nice if these IoT devices just ran Wasm mm -hmm. and then I could use whatever I wanted <laughs> to write my mm -hmm. Wasm? Well, and again, there there's a place where a processor might show yeah. up. Okay. Uh, see if the Arduino folks have more thought about a Wasm Arduino. So um, JavaScript is inherently single-threaded, right? Yes. Okay. Except for workers, but that's like, oh. yeah. But um, I mean, like, so how does the say the Kotlin uh, concurrency model map onto uh, WebAssembly? 
Yeah, so I mean, multi-threading in the JavaScript runtime environment has been a major open question with lots of different proposals and attempts at it, um, workers being one of them. Uh, and there's some trade-offs there as to how that is particularly implemented. Not all APIs are available in workers. Some APIs are only available in workers. There's a degree to which workers are heavyweight and take some time to start up and shut down. They're sort of sub-processes, aren't they? Um, so we use processes differently for browser isolation. So it's not quite a, a sub-process, but it is a it is a heavy thread. It's a very managed thread. Um, and in particular, the post message between workers and you know performance of of communication between workers is is challenging. The shared memory model is not quite there yet, although it's you know there's a version of it. Um, and so for WebAssembly, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There is an impotence mismatch between how static language developers like Kotlin developers think of multi-threading and coroutines. And uh, you know, I, I used to work on the Go programming language, and they call them Go routines, and they use them extensively. And so we have to figure out a model for that. Um, there's some proposals and discussion around lightweight threading specifically for WebAssembly and you know creating ways of carving out uh, some processes within the WebAssembly static environment that are separate from how we do it in JavaScript. Um, this, of course, opens up a whole bunch of questions around interop, which was your earlier question. So now you've got multiple threads over here and you've got potentially workers in JavaScript on the other side. And how do they talk to each other? How do they synchronize? How do they share memory? Um, so yeah, this is a this is an active area of, of investigation. But right now, uh, workers is uh, the path forward uh, for multi-threaded, uh, true multi-threading um, in uh, in JavaScript and WebAssembly. Yeah, when you say all these things, there's a part of me that goes, "Oh, it's so much work. We'll never get through it." And then then I also think, "Oh, but it's the web, the web <laughs> that you know, the, all the things that people have done." No, I think they'll get through it. They'll figure it out. The web finds a way. The web finds a way. It's just <laughs> exactly <too big>. right. <laughs> And this is big enough of a topic and there's enough eyes on it. I, I'm pretty confident we'll have a better answer uh, pretty soon. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's exciting. Um, let's see, other WASM things. What else did we explore around WASM? Oh, well, what about the, um, you know, like Kotlin has their cross-platform user interface library that, <laughs> I'm not sure what state it's in. So just today, unendorsed by Google in any way, but just today I saw tweets from the guy at JetBrains who's leading Kotlin Wasm. He shared Compose with Wasm, right. which is the, the Kotlin UI framework for Android and that JetBrains has taken to other platforms, and they've made it work with Wasm, and the performance is astonishing. Hmm. Uh, the I didn't look super deep, but I think that part of, at least part of the potential implementation uses Skia. So Skia is this um, graphics library that Android uses, and I, it's probably written in C++ or C or something. Mm. Anyways, they can Wasmify Skia, and then Kotlin Wasm can then just call right into Skia. And oh, and then there's a Skia to um, web, web canvas mapping. So that's how they actually get the pixels on the screen. So, mm. Yeah, so yeah it's a, interesting. It, I, so I also work with our graphics team and we're actually looking at some new primitives for very high performance graphics um, and potentially making it easier to sort of build entire scene graphs um, in, in web APIs and then render them and update them very quickly at high frame rates. Um, so yeah, this it, it's a super exciting space anywhere you're doing something with any degree of intensity. So whether it's numerics or the sheets recalculation of all your formulas or drawing, you know, low-level graphics uh, on the screen, Wasm is a great fit there. And and I think the web APIs now that Wasm is a thing, we can start to involve web APIs, um, considering that use case as well of you know draw commands coming from uh, Wasm code uh, at a very high rate. So that's super yeah. exciting in terms of what the graphics capabilities of the web will be in the next couple of years. Yeah. Is there any capability or in, in the system that would allow you to add um, WebAssembly instructions later? Like if you discover that, oh my gosh, we, we missed something or, you know, the world has changed and now we understand something better. Can yeah, you do yeah, that? Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, oh, uh, okay. uh, an opcode is just a number, right? And so we just need everybody to well, agree on if what If it's that... not in hardware, it's just a number. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly right. And once we kind of agree on what that new opcode does and how it interfaces with everything else, um, there's definitely room to be adding more instructions. And I think that's definitely something we'll be doing. Uh, right. And that's years. a reason that you wouldn't want to cast these things in hardware, that you would always want that ideally thin layer so that if you added another opcode, you could, you could adjust that. Yeah. It seems like performance is like the, the big reason for WASM in a lot of ways. Is there other kind of less, lesser talked about benefits of WASM that are also interesting? Um, yeah, I mean, they they touch on performance. Look, I mean, JavaScript is Turing complete, so anything that you can compute in one framework, you can compute in the other one. Um, so it's it's definitely not a capability story, but performance itself is kind of one of these weird things where, you know, if something is fast, it starts to become less a, a difference of degree and more a difference of kind, right? When you can really start to think about game engines and you can really start to think about advanced numerics and machine learning and that sort of thing, running client side. Then the equation of you know even business models change, right? Like, do we need to spin up a whole bunch of servers to do all of the work server side when everybody has these really powerful devices uh, in their hands? We can ship a little binary that's the same across all of them. It runs on any uh, architecture and it runs relatively fast at very low cost. Um, the main one we look at, you know, the flip coin of performance is is actually resource efficiency. So, can we actually run heavy workloads without you know burning? battery life uh, on a device? Can we run workloads, for example, in a service worker that run periodically in the background um, and sort of like are downloading, caching, recomputing, transpiling, doing machine learning, doing federated learning, um, customizing content, that sort of thing, and shipping some of those workloads into the device for a whole host of reasons like you know, privacy, for example, not necessarily tracking users uh, server side, but letting the user's device become gradually smarter at giving the user the content that they want from a particular service. So performance is one of those weird things where it just like it changes the trade-offs and changes the assumptions of how people architect their services and their apps. Uh, and so it could realize benefits sort of, you know, to, to privacy, for example, or to just, you know, uh, um, increasing the sort of compute power available to startups, for example, um, and allowing them to ship advanced models that run client side so that they don't have to pay for the servers. Um, those are the kinds of situations where performance gets really interesting beyond just running faster. Yeah. Yeah. That the increased performance opens up new ways of doing things and new opportunities. And yeah. remember we talked to Chris Hunt about Rust and why he loved Rust so much and, and, it wasn't necessarily about the language. Yeah, the language has some nice things, but he was like, it's about the resource efficiency that is produced from the from the language. And that is what was the most compelling thing for him about Rust. Well, but he was also dealing with battery-powered remote devices. Right. So <laughs> yeah. that was yeah. like an overarching issue yeah. for him. So yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But 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 as you're pointing out, yeah, it opens doors when you yeah. can be efficient. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, the whole point of computers is they can do things that we can't. <laughs> and and if if I can do it at the same speed as the computer, you know, it's kind of a toss up. Right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, the I think one of the questions that comes up a lot around WASM is on the interop and we've touched on it a little bit, but maybe just tell us a little more like, okay, so I've, I've written something that's compiled down to WASM. Is there like an FFI already to like be able to make a call out to JavaScript and for JavaScript to call into me or how does that? Yeah, there are some, uh, I would say, relatively rudimentary uh, ways of calling back and forth and, and passing objects back and forth. Um, but it doesn't, I, I would say, it doesn't resemble what programmers are used to accessing directly. Um, and so usually the way you would access it would be through a library. Um, and so you would write a library that has some glue logic between the code that you're writing in JavaScript and the code that you're writing in WASM, um, in Kotlin or whatever the other language is. Um, or the other thing you would do is, for example, if you're accessing web APIs that are in JavaScript, then you would have some kind of web API library in, in Kotlin or whatever language you're using. Um, we actually saw this when we did our sample was Kotlin has a library that you just say like document dot 
something that add element, you know, and we gave it like our string or whatever, and it rendered it on the page. And so there was some mapping through a Kotlin API and WASM to actually making a, a JavaScript call to like add a node to the DOM or something. Is that is that yeah. like that so, has to go through the FFI layer or whatever, right? Right, but that there would be some code in that library function that's maybe you know translating, you know, re-encoding the string or you know creating the JavaScript object, um, and so all of that kind of induces a lot of the sort of runtime overheads of of JavaScript itself because you're creating a dynamic object from a static object. Um, it's something we've been poking around at, like trying to trying to fix and trying to address. Um, we're on, on the V8 side, we're looking at optimizations where we can detect that that's happening and then sort of um, elide the JavaScript object creation sort of in the engine. Um, but it's a it's a very tricky space. It's something that requires a little bit more research. Yeah, so if the DOM is some shared piece of memory, like could you could you essentially reference the DOM from WASM and just like manipulate that directly or something? Yeah, I, I and, think that's and, been an area of exploration, but I don't know what the state for is. sure. And the DOM being a entirely JavaScript data structure is entirely dynamic, and so you can attach new <laughs> methods and do all kinds of crazy things to those objects. Uh, and so we have to support that or expose that somehow. But one thing actually that could be helpful is the string ref proposal I talked about, because a lot of the attributes on the DOM are are strings inherently, and so we may not be able to speed up the creation of all these JavaScript objects without that sort of like interface layer in between WebAssembly and JavaScript. But at least some of the primitives that are very common um, in that data structure, we might be able to um, create sort of native uh, versions of them. And that might get, get us sort of like 80% of the performance, we hope. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So do you have any sense of a timeline when we're going to start seeing i know it's a terrible question to ask but but it's like you know we're curious when can we start doing stuff when can you make a, a web app that is wasm and not javascript <laughs> yeah like that just just like you know what what when we, might we hope to see some things well, I think uh, this year is going to be a very interesting year for WebAssembly and the web and application development on the web. Uh, there's a bunch of different things, some of which we've talked about that are all coming together um, at once. Um, you know, JetBrains has been very active and, and has been sharing their results and, and they've had incredible results compiling Kotlin as well as, you know, Skia as well as uh, Compose uh, to WebAssembly and running it in the browser. Um, so that's super exciting. I'm, I, I anticipate some, you know, um, announcements from their end uh, sometime this year. Um, and uh, we we mentioned last year at I/O that we're doing that internally for Java, and that's been a big part of kind of developing Wasm GC and bringing that um, to to the ecosystem. And that's something that we plan to roll out in Chrome uh, this year as well, so that more developers are able to, and more toolchain authors and language developers are able to uh, experiment with it. Um, and then, yeah, you, you mentioned sort of the, the cross-platform frameworks. So uh, Compose, Jetpack Compose, which is sort of our version of it. Uh, we also have the Flutter framework. Um, and a lot of different folks on the graphics side as well are looking at this sort of write once, run anywhere from a UI point of view. Um, and so there's some work being done there on the on the Canvas and other other web APIs to, to make that possible. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, you know, this year is going to be year where we are. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. So find the year on the desktop, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Right. And when did when did that happen? When when was the year of the Linux desktop? I feel like it happened. No, it happened to me this year because did I it? finally got my audio working on Linux. Oh, yep. Been using okay. been using Linux on my desktop since. Oh, I can go back and look it up every once in a while. Like ninety two or something like that. Uh -huh. So when I started using Linux on the desktop, and but the audio just hasn't this year, I, nope. This year got it working. So this uh -huh. year is the was year. That of, it, was that because of Nix? No, I got it working on Ubuntu, oh, and then okay. when I switched over to Nix, it just worked out of the box. I didn't mm. even have to play with it. That's mysterious. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, it, I think it's it. This is like the most exciting year yet for WASM. And then there's there's just so much going into it from so many, so many different angles that it's just going to get more exciting, which I think is why, why I see this hype around WASM. And initially I was like, come on, like, like is this really that exciting? And I think it is. I think that it's going to be a pretty, pretty pivotal moment in 
the way that technology is built and used and well just the idea that we could actually have a single app that runs everywhere is you know it's like i i I stopped taking that seriously a long time ago and the fact that it might actually happen that's that's pretty cool because i don't want to i don't want to think about all those deployment i mean that's the thing you think about how much time do companies spend you know worrying about deploying to all these different platforms and if you could erase that it would you know it was almost like when everybody who started an internet company had to run their own web server (laughs) farms you know and then it we skipped away from that and now you know you know it it jumps you forward and this feels like it could be that kind of jump forward it does i don't know if it'll happen this year but probably next year I think we're going to see like a major operating system that's just going to have WASM support out of the box. Hmm. Just like, you know, you download your WASM, download a WASM file and run it. And you don't have to install any runtimes just as operating system supported. Mm -hmm. And then that's. Yeah. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. Mm -hmm. That'll happen. It's exciting. Well, did we miss anything? No, man, I think we covered a lot of ground. (laughs) <laughs> great <laughs> yeah thanks so much for joining us i learned a ton and um yeah super excited about wasm so thanks for all your work on it on it and making it better and pushing it forward awesome yeah, great chatting with you guys thanks for having me hey.